0: Welcome to Biographicon.
1: Welcome to Biographicon, where we consider marginalised cultural players of the 18th century North. Throughout this series we're examining the lives, convictions and creativity of regional figures who help to shape our modern day places and thinking. Some of these men and women were recognised and well known by their contemporaries, but most have now been forgotten. And with the help of leading academics, I present the case for reviving interest in them. This episode introduces a radical writer and political agitator called Thomas Spence, who was born in Newcastle upon Tyne in the mid 18th century and dedicated his life to a plan. A plan! which would abolish landlords forever. Spence's lifetime closely coincides with the peak of the enclosure movement, enclosure being the term used in English land ownership that refers to the appropriation of common land by private interests, rights that have been in place since before the Normans. Some scholars consider the enclosure movement marks the beginning of capitalism, between 1604 and 1914, there were more than 5,200 enclosure bills, which amounted to the appropriation by private landlords of about one fifth of the total area of England. But more recently, in just the 40 years since Margaret Thatcher came to power, an eye watering additional 10% of the British landmass has now been privatised. The scholar Brett Christopher calls this the biggest privatisation you've never heard of. What might Thomas Spence have thought of today's Rentier capitalists? I went on a psychogeographic tour of Newcastle with Professor Alistair Bonnet of Newcastle University to visit Spence's haunts and to consider whether it might be time for Spence's plan to be realised. So here we are on Grey Street um, with Professor Alistair Bonnet, and I suppose the first thing to ask about, or for us to find out about for the uninitiated is what is a psychogeography?
0: Psychogeography is the art of getting lost. So it's about exploring the landscape and finding opportunities for adventure and also for insurrection, for finding alternative meanings in the landscape. Uh, That's what I think of uh, Psychogeography as, so I hope we're going to be enjoying it. So you've written on
1: ideas about nostalgia with regard to Psychogeography.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, because the people who invented the psychogeography, uh, the Situationist International, um, had a real sort of nostalgic relationship to the city. They lived in, Paris, and they saw it being uh, overturned by modernisation and all the old labyrinths, all the nooks and crannies of the city, which they really valued, all the working-class districts, um, all being sort of demolished and modernised. And they imagined that this modernization was, a suppression of the possibilities of revolution. They saw in the old city, in its um, histories and in its um, uh, maze-like quality, um, opportunities for the imagination. Um, So they were quite anti-modern, as well as being um, revolutionary uh, insurrectionists. It's a fascinating paradox. That's one of the things that's interested me about situationism over the years.
1: First, Alistair and I wandered down to the Quayside by the River Tyne. It's quite a drop downhill from the town centre to the magnificent broad body of water that separates Newcastle to the north from Gateshead to the south. Today, much of this area is privately owned. Law courts and legal firms guard their turf with threats of parking penalty notices. And a multi-story car park charges a premium to park your car and visit the Quayside marketeers selling their goods and crafts to Sunday strollers under the Tyne Bridge. Over the river, the enormous glass and steel shell of the Sage Concert Hall dominates the skyline. In his tour through the whole islands of Great Britain written in the 1720s, Daniel Defoe describes this as the longest and largest quay that is to be seen in England. In Spence's day, this quayside lined with ships would have presented a remarkable scene of commercial activity. So we're down at the Quayside at Broadgarth, where there's a plaque to Thomas Spence.
0: Yes, Thomas Spence, 1750-1814, born Quayside, Newcastle, utopian writer and land reformer, courageous pioneering campaigner for the rights of men and women, founded a schoolroom and debating society in Broadgarth, and there's a little quote from Spence, dare to be free. So this is where Spence was born? Yes, Spence was born at the Quayside, uh, 1750. Part of a family, huge family of 19 children, all very poor. And Spence uh, was born in poverty and died the same way. A rags to rags story. His dad made uh, fishing nets and his mum um, mended stockings. Um, He never made any money and he was never interested in becoming a wealthy person. He was interested in changing the circumstances of ordinary labouring people like himself and um, his parents and he dedicated his entire life to that. A great um, self-sacrifice including including having quite long spells in in prison. He was in prison for high treason uh, a couple of times and this was a time in which high treason actually had a penalty for being hung drawn and quartered i believe um, so it wasn't a um uh, a life without risk we have some descriptions of um spence uh, by some of his uh, sympathizers and this is one from uh william hone he says spence was a native of newcastle small in stature of grave countenance and deportment serious in speech and with a broad burr in his accent he would sometimes relax a little at evening parties where his plan was discussed. On these occasions, he sang a song highly characteristic of himself and his plan, in which is a sentiment denoting the pleasing state of being as free as a cat, and that really does encapsulate the nature of um, Spence. He, he, what, his biggest ambition was to achieve freedom not only for himself but for other people of the of the labouring poor, and um, yeah. He wasn't um, uh, adverse from singing about it, from writing poems about it, and um, all sorts of ways of um, spreading this message.
2: All you who wonder at the times, that they say so hard to grow, come hither, listen unto me, and you the cause shall know. The landlords what they thus have revered, in other lands do spend, and where we've landlords things will worsen, but never once will mend.
0: The plaque mentions that he was a utopian writer, and that's one of the fascinating things about Spence, the range of his imagination. He wrote these utopian political fantasies. Um, One was a fantasy about a place he called Spensonia, taking his own name, and it was a place of uh, equality and democracy where landlords were all banished. Another of his um, fantasy utopias was a place called Crusonia, taking the idea of Robinson Crusoe and turning it into a social and political fantasy. Again, a society with equality. Equality between men and women. That was one of the things about Spence. Uh, He believed in universal suffrage, which was quite an unusual idea at the time, not just universal in terms of working-class men and upper-class men, but women as well. And Spence is one of those people who takes an idea, takes the idea of freedom, and just runs with it because we all know that The Rights of Women was written by um, Wollstonecraft in the late 18th century, but what about the rights of infants? So that was Spence. He came in and said, yeah, rights of women, great, but what about the rights of children? And um, I think, as far as I know, he was the first person ever to take seriously the idea that children have rights and that we need to bring up children without dirt and poverty. Yeah, he'd seen so much of that as a child. He knew about dirt and poverty um, amongst children. And he returned to that theme, the condition of children again and again in his writing.
2: The golden age so famed by men of yore shall now be counted fabulous no more. The tyrant lion, like an ox shall feed and lisping infants shall tamed tiger's lead. With deadly asps shall sport of sucklings play no aught obnoxious blight the blithesome day. Yes, all that prophets ever of bliss foretold, and all that poets ever feigned of old. As yielding joy to man shall now be seen, and even flourish like an evergreen, then mortals join to hail great nature's plan, that fully gives to babes those rights it gives to man.
1: So, was there anything in his background? I mean,
0: where did this come from? Well, Newcastle is sometimes talked about as quite a provincial city these days, but it wasn't back in the 18th century. Um, It was a cosmopolitan European city, and the ideas from revolutionary France were flowing through the city, and there was a lively intellectual community. Part of it centred around the Newcastle Philosophical Society, and there were the engraver, Thomas Buick, who was a great friend of Spence, although they sometimes had literal fights with clubs, Spence was quite a fiery character. Um, And other thinkers and writers who formed what can be called the Northumbrian uh, Enlightenment. Um, I think it's distinctive, people talk about the French Enlightenment, sometimes they talk about the Edinburgh Enlightenment, but these are all very kind of top-down Enlightenments. They're about thinkers and theoreticians and writers. So people actually like Buick and Spence were not. They were people who were interested in ordinary people, in talking to the labouring poor, as as they called them, and theirs was a a bottom-up vision of enlightenment. So it's kind of distinctive, and its story needs to be told. Next, we wound our way back up
1: to the city centre, which was bustling with shoppers and restaurant-goers, to the Monument which is a city landmark and a place to gather. A lot of political demonstrations take place here today. The monument itself is a 134 foot high column with a statue of Earl Grey on top. So we're in this area uh, of Newcastle that's known as Granger Town and that is uh, a place that is, was rebuilt really in the, um, in the early 19th century. Um, We're standing under the monument to Earl Grey, which dominates this landscape. Can you tell us a little bit about Earl Grey? And wasn't there once an idea to replace Earl Grey with the statue of Thomas
0: Spence? Yes, there was. Apparently, Earl Grey was the great reforming politician, and uh, on the plinth of that, um, huge statue to him at Monument. It says how grateful we are to his reform act uh, in the early uh, 19th century but that reform didn't do much uh, for most people and uh, Thomas Spence was someone who wanted a complete change in the circumstances of ordinary people and so yeah the idea was that one day it would see Thomas Spence up on that statue rather than um, Earl Grey.
1: We may be waiting some time for that. But I still wanted to know where Thomas Spence got all of his ideas from and what motivated the son of a net maker and stocking repairer to set off on such a radical path. So were there any events that occurred that might have triggered his his
0: thinking? Yes, the enclosure of the town moor was the great event that radicalised Thomas Spence. That's what he said. Um, Looking back on his life, um, the... Uh, The big town moor that occupies so much of um, central Newcastle still today um, was in danger of being enclosed. Uh, It was common land and um, a group of um, aristocrats and uh, other people decided to make more money out of it by by enclosing it. Now this was resisted um, by the freemen of uh, Newcastle and uh, they won.
1: This place, Newcastle's town moor, is one of the largest inner city public spaces in the world. Almost 1,000 acres of common land with a history of grazing rights dating back to the 12th century. And it still belongs to the freemen of the city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. This space is a rare example of long-term resistance to privatisation. In the early 1770s, the Grand Alliance, which was a group of wealthy local families acting as an oligarchy through the town's corporation and mayor, attempted to enclose the all, in direct opposition to the interests of the town's freemen and their families. They go, they go, they go, they go. The freemen, led by the Presbyterian preacher James Murray and others, resisted this attempt at privatisation. The tension boiled over into national politics leading the freemen to put up radical candidates for the 1774 election. And that year saw Parliament pass the Town Moor Act, which has protected the common rights to this land
0: ever since. That was a very famous victory, and Thomas Spence, he looked back at that and said, that was the moment I realized that you didn't have to just sort of lie down and accept the inevitable, The people could uh, fight back and they could achieve victories. And actually, he dates his um, radicalisation from that moment of resistance, so very exciting to him. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. In Newcastle, uh, he got involved in politics from a young age and uh, he really came to the uh, attention to people in Newcastle when he gave a talk at the Newcastle Philosophical Society, 1775, and it was a talk which called for the public ownership of all land and all buildings. And he said only through public ownership um, could the oppression of people, particularly the oppression of people through having to pay rent, uh, being oppressed by landlords, only through this public ownership Could good labouring people, but everybody um, achieve freedom.
2: But lest it should be said that a system whereby they may reap more advantages consistent with the nature of society cannot be proposed, I will attempt to show the outlines of such a plan. Let it be supposed then that the whole people in some country, after much reasoning and deliberation, should conclude that every man has an equal property in the land in the neighbourhood where he resides, They therefore resolve that if they live in a society together should only be with a view that everyone may reap all the benefits from their natural rights and privileges possible.
0: And for this insurrectionary talk he was thrown out of the Newcastle Philosophical Society but he learned something then he said well I'm just going to keep on distributing my message and he was giving out copies around the streets and he learnt from that point on that um, to communicate a message it's not just a question of writing because um, he wanted to talk to um, what he called the labouring poor, that was his audience. Uh, he wasn't really interested in communicating to the more literate sections or middle class or upper class sections of society. So his was a real unique story, it was, this is, this is a guy who is a uh, working class revolutionary. and. Uh, Karl Marx um, uh, refers to him as one of the early English communists. He was a legend in uh, the 19th century uh, communist and socialist uh, movement because he stuck to his convictions and he stuck to his audience. And so his message was distributed by chalk graffiti. It was distributed by songs. He was a great singer. It was distributed by uh, meetings. And also through his coinage, which sounds a kind of obscure thing, but he made a lot of his own coins and he threw them out of windows and his coins have messages on, his revolutionary messages, Spence's plan um, was one of the things that was put on them, or uh, images of uh, animals, you know, cats and uh, cockerels and pigs, Um, and the cat one was a beautiful one, it says, um, you know, live free like me. You know, it has got this sense of animals having more freedom than, than people and um, he also he has this point about how animals don't have to pay rent. He's got a great little poem about, poem about how earthworms don't have to pay rent. Why should we? He really hated landlords. And uh, I think he touches quite a lot of uh, uh, concerns amongst us today um, when we are still labouring under the same type of regime, essentially, that uh, Thomas Spence was uh, born into. He would not be happy to see Britain in 2022. He'd be absolutely shocked. The plan had two elements to it, didn't it?
1: It's about land, but it's also about language.
0: Yeah, Thomas Spence was an autodidact. In other words, he uh, was a self-taught individual and he was fascinated with the power of education. And he wanted to um, uh, create literacy amongst the labouring poor. And so he was one of the first people to write a dictionary. And um, his 1775 dictionary um, was a phonetic dictionary. In other words, it translated um, uh, English words into the sounds of spoken English. And he actually published quite a lot of his pamphlets in this um, new, entirely new, unique phonetic script which he invented. Um, so that uh, uh, effort it sometimes baffles people but he believed that through education people would um, understand their condition and rise up against the landlord class. That's one of the reasons he'd be so shocked and ashamed of Britain today because people are educated, they can read and they can write and yet they accept the conditions of um, uh, exploitation. all the time why is that I was just talking to my partner about this It's extraordinary how educated uh, people are and yet how passive and that's what would have shocked Spence if he was here now he wouldn't have said oh great you're doing so well it's so great to see all these cars and shops he would have said what is wrong with you guys you're all educated you're all literate and, you just you, and yet you allow exploitation and oppression to happen um, so he would have been rather ashamed of us I'm afraid and is it,
1: is it, what do you say, it's true that there's a tradition then in English socialism that's that's land-based and not necessarily, like, workers-based, or, mm. or, you know, is there a difference?
0: Yeah, well, he was an urban boy, um, Spence, but the city was very different back then. The division between the countryside and the city was not nearly so apparent. I mean, there'd be animals, pigs and all sorts wandering around the streets, so he's... Uh, ambition to have uh, England as the people's farm sounds very kind of agricultural and and pastoral in orientation but he thought it was as much for people in the city, places like Newcastle, as it was for anywhere else. And it always comes back in Spence's words to uh, the idea of landlords and they, 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 they exploit people and the way they earn money without contributing anything So it's only through labour and uh, people's hard work that he thought people should be able to earn a living. That's why he's so aghast at the the landlord class. Because that's one of the unique things about um, Spence and his radical culture. It wasn't just about um, complicated ideas or theories of change, yeah? It was about um, communicating in the direct language uh, of the people. And um, that actually makes him such a different character to, to later revolutionaries uh, such as Karl Marx, um, who, for whom it was all about developing complicated ideas and critique, yeah? So Spence wasn't interested in critique. He was interested in having a plan. What are we going to do? And that was his constant message. He thought he had a plan, you know, to turn Britain into the people's farm, the common ownership of the land and its buildings. And he worked on that and refined it, but he stuck to it in terms of its basic principles. And this is so different from just saying, I have a critique of capitalism. Um, So you can say uh, they're on the same page, they're both revolutionaries, but actually I think that working class radical tradition of Thomas Spence is really important to remember and uh, connect to because it actually has a far more practical quality um, then essentially the more middle class, more kind of academic orientated forms of radicalism that um, developed later in the 20th century. You know, Marx is difficult to understand, he's verbose, he's, he's, he's full of you know the idea that it's only eggheads who can really be um, understanding the world around them. Spence was the opposite of all that. He said it's obvious what's wrong and I have a plan, it's going to fix it. (laughs) It's kind of naive, but it's beautifully simple.
1: And there's an example of someone who opposed landlords, Jack the Blaster, that
0: um, Spence met, didn't he? Yes, Jack the Blaster was a famous local character and uh, being sick of uh, paying rent, this former miner moved to a cave in Marsden. And he lived there with his wife and he was often uh, visited uh, by people as a kind of local curiosity. But for Spence, this was a uh, person who had set up in freedom away from the uh, oppressions of the landlord class. And actually, uh, Spence claims to have been the first person to write the words, um, the rights of man in English. And he was recalling this, he was recalling his um, uh, visit to Jack the Blaster, sitting in Newgate on a charge of high treason, and he recalls that um, he went to visit uh, Jack the Blaster and he wrote with chalk above the fireplace um, of this free man, as he calls him, the following lines.
2: He's landlord's vile, whose man's peace ma, come levy rents here if you can. Your stewards and lawyers, I defy, and live with all the rights of man.
0: And he puts that rights of man in capital. And as he says, he says this is the first time that the rights of man expression was used in English, and it's so extraordinary. It was used in chalk above the fireplace of an old miner in a cave. And that tells you a kind of working class history of this rights of man. So often associated with later writers and more kind of literary and philosophical tradition, but actually it comes from this um, very humble origin. And you can go and visit this place today, can't you? Because isn't it a pub? Yeah, it's a pub. And um, you can go and see the fireplace. Yeah, it's just there in, in the back of the pub. And the, the cave is still worth a visit. Um, uh, it's not particularly um, uh, highfalutin in terms of the menu. Um, and they do mention the Jack the Blaster reference, but there's no reference to Thomas Spence. You know, this could be a key pilgrimage site for people interested in uh, English political history. But as so often with Thomas Spence, his story is forgotten. It's marginalised, and some of the reason for that is because he was interested in the labouring poor as his audience. They were the people who were listening, and they were listening. Um, you know, Spencianism is the only political ideology to ever been uh, outlawed in this country. Um, as far as I know. Um, so that was in 1817, a little after he died. Um, the uh, British Parliament outlawed Spencianism and Spencean philanthropists. And um, why did they do that? Yeah, they did it because there were so many people, so many ordinary people who were drawn to these ideas. And of course, later years, they all got forgotten. We, Spencianism. when I first came to Newcastle, I'd never even heard of this guy. He's not part of the curriculum. Um, and I, the first thing that really struck me was to learn that there was a political ideology that was so influential, so important, that it was actually outlawed. And it was called Spencianism, and that tells you something. So in your own writing,
1: when you're reconsidering the past, you've talked about nostalgia. And that almost seems a rather contradictory idea when we're discussing radicalism, but you don't think
0: so. Why is that? Well. The socialist tradition has a long history of looking to the past for models of a society which is freer, which is better and we can see that in the history of the idea of alienation. What is alienation? It is being ripped from one's natural state of being. The whole point of Marxism is to say that we have been alienated and we've been removed from our natural state. That is why I say I'm not accusing Marx of uh, nostalgia. I'm saying nostalgia is part and parcel of the intellectual argument of communism, but it's also there again and again in different socialist movements who look back. And at the moment, we have um, socialist movements that look back to the welfare state, that look back to forms of um, social cohesion, um, which we have lost that uh, imagine capitalism as a process of uh, pouring acid on the connections that bind us together. And so this isn't admitted to because often people imagine that backward-looking people are old, which is the worst thing you can be in a modern society, isn't it? Uh, Backward-looking people are old and they they are conservative and really this theme of nostalgia Um, is something you find across the political spectrum and it's really active and it can be really creative and productive in uh, Socialist and communist thought it just needs to be understood and acknowledged
1: But in the 18th century the term radical really meant reformist didn't it?
0: Well, there was a sense that people were losing a lot through the introduction of capitalism Capitalism was wrenching people away from the countryside, it was destroying old ties and old communities, and it was creating a lot of alienation and poverty, and so looking back, uh, looking back to old traditions, to existing communities, was something that Spence had in Common with uh, another radical of the era, William Cobbett, who was very much um, uh, nostalgic for the, the lost old ways of England and contrasted them with the avaricious, um, horrible uh, capitalist ethos that he saw wrenching people from their homes and wrenching people from their communities. So this early radical tradition um, in England was quite backward looking, but it was backward looking to look forward. Uh, It imagined that we could only create a decent society by keeping hold of some of those notions of community, um, notions of togetherness, uh, which existed uh, before capitalism.
1: So here we are outside the Lytton Phil here in Newcastle to conclude our Psychogeography of Newcastle. It's really the inheritor of 18th century Newcastle culture.
0: Yes it was uh, the Newcastle Philosophical Society that Spence was thrown out of uh, in 1775. And um, I think about Spence not in terms of commemoration or in Casting our mind back to someone who was one of the great and the good in a way He wasn't one of those but he was someone who speaks to us very directly and Through whose life we can understand someone who struggled against the circumstances. He was born into struggled against them uh, and in a way he failed he didn't revolutionize society Uh, England was pretty much the same when he died in 1814 as when he was born But nevertheless, his ideas still speak to us very directly. They're simple, straightforward ideas. They're about a plan, about what we should do next, how we can take the circumstances we find ourselves in and arrive at a a better future for ourselves and our children. So Spence speaks to us very directly through the centuries.
1: So would you say, then, that Thomas Spence has a right to be included in Biographicon?
0: Yes. He should be front and centre because um, Thomas Spence's message speaks to us so directly today. His concerns about the exploitation of landlords, you know, who doesn't respond to that? Um, Every student, every sort of struggling person with a job knows what it's like. Um, And um, he also speaks very directly because he had a plan. He wasn't just a theoretician, he wasn't someone who was trying to baffle you with um, long words. He was in many ways a simple individual, but he was also someone who had a very clear uh, political message about the common ownership of the land, common ownership of buildings, and about direct democracy. He believed that democracy should be as local as possible, that people should have control over their own municipalities. Again and again, he speaks to us about concerns that not only make sense, but that we can understand. Thank you, Professor
1: Alistair Bonnet, for sharing with us your fascination with Thomas Spence and his deep resentment of landlords, a sentiment I sense, which may be shared by many. Sometime in the late 1780s, Spence left Newcastle for London to pursue his plan and he never returned. There, he gained a substantial following, and his admirers formed the Society of Spencean Philanthropists. Spence's plan upset the authorities to such a degree that after his death in 1814, his ideas were outlawed. It's easy, perhaps, to see why the memory of Spence and his thinking were buried by the state and its landowning class. By separating into one biographicon, this peculiar class of lives, a philanthropic emulation would be excited, a debt of social gratitude would be discharged, a trophy to patriotism would be erected, and an instructive knowledge of the present state of nations and the gradual concatenation of intercourse would be diffused. Literature should rear altars, to the missionaries of human civilization.